Good morning, church. The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. It's on page 6 in your bulletin, if you would like to follow along. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning again. I said good morning again. All right. All right. Well, you may have been picking up this message that today is a special day because it marks the beginning of our ministry's fall kickoff, where we want to reintroduce to you our different ministries, ways that you can get involved, be a part of the community, especially. For those of you that might be new to the church, we know this time of year a lot of people move in, take new jobs, or simply restart a search for a spiritual community, maybe a search even for God himself. It's also a great time of year for those of you that have been a part of a church or a part of our church to renew your commitment, uh, to find fresh ways that you can belong or ways that you can serve or love those around you. And so it is our ministry's fall kickoff, and we're excited for it. And that also means that it's a good time for us to revisit the question, what is the mission of our church? What's the mission of our church? We're going to try to answer that question over the next few Sundays in a sermon series, beginning with this sermon here today. So before we dive into a partial answer to that question Let's pause and let's pray together. Jesus, we need you. We need you so much. This time, these next minutes are for you, ultimately for your glory, that we might see you for all your beauty and truth and majesty and power. Uh, but we pray that you would come now and change our hearts and even change our church as we reorient ourselves to what we feel you have called us to be and called us to do. So come and bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is that time of year. Deep divisions are resurfacing in the church. Former friends are now treating each other like enemies, talking, of course, about the start of football season, right? Yeah, already after one week, some of you are depressed, your team laid an egg. Others of you are gloating, and some of you just hate it when the preacher talks about sports. <laughs> well, sorry, here we are. 
And one thing that I love about watching sports is the blooper reel, right? Clips that they show of silly moments, funny mistakes that athletes make sometimes on the field. And one of my favorites is when a, a player fumbles the football and a scrum of players from both teams now scramble to recover the ball until someone finally picks up the ball, but then in a moment of confusion, gets spun around a little bit and runs down the field the wrong way and maybe even scores a touchdown. Have you ever seen this? It's both funny and sad at the same time. You feel badly for the player. Now, it's funny, those little moments, as sports often turn out to be, I think is a little lesson for life and even a little lesson for the ministry of the church. See, because you can run hard. You, you can be pumping your arms down the proverbial field, even the entire way. You can even score in a moment of glory. You can even do a dance afterwards. But if your goal or your mission is pointed in the wrong direction, you might not actually be helping your team to win. Which is why it's important for us, again and again, to ask ourselves some reorienting questions on a regular basis. Like, what are we really trying to do? Uh, where are we trying to head? What direction? Or in other words, what's our mission? What's our mission? So what is the mission of Grace Meridian Hill? Which either you're hearing as a reinforcement of what you already know about the church, or if you're perhaps hearing about it for the very first time. Now, of course, at the highest level, we share the same threefold purpose of every Christian church, everywhere of all times and of all places, which is to worship God, to nurture his people, and to serve as a witness to Christ in the world. But you know, it's also good and right for individual local churches like ours to articulate and to express how that basic blueprint applies to specific people and to specific places to which we're called. And that's the reason why we have a particular mission statement to guide our ministry. And so the mission statement of Grace Meridian Hill, I believe you can find it printed in your bulletin in the sermon section on page 8 there. And this is what it says. This is our mission. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is intentionally spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the good of our neighbors, and the glory of Jesus Christ in the neighborhoods of Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams, Morgan, and beyond. We're building a gospel community that's intentionally, spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is unpack that mission statement. 
We're going to look at different key components of some of the biblical foundations of this mission statement, looking at a few key phrases that are written here. Today we're looking at the phrase gospel community. Friends, what are we all about? What kind of church are we trying to be? We endeavor by God's grace to build a gospel community. A gospel community is a community that's grounded in the gospel, that's defined by, that's humbled by, that's fueled by, that's propelled into the lives of our neighbors by the gospel. You say, well, that's a funny word. I've heard of it, but what does it really mean? What is the gospel? It's the good news, literally. The good news that God, by his own loving initiative, sent his son into our broken and sinful world to live, to die, and then to rise again to make all things new, starting with you, starting with me. So a gospel community is a community that has the grace and the truth of Jesus at the very center of its identity. It's a place where ultimately what binds us together isn't a common personality, isn't a common view of politics, It's not a common ethnic background or a common social status, but rather a common love for Jesus. A gospel community is a place where lives are being changed by this good news, the grace of Jesus. Where people are being broken of sinful habits. Where people are being healed of deep, even debilitating wounds where people are being freed from addiction, where people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to think, speak, and act more and more like Jesus, being loved by him and then also learning to love like him. The gospel community is also a community where the good news of God's grace transforms our relationships where we're given power by God to love each other, love each other differently and deeply. And the passage that we're looking at today actually teaches us a few ways that the gospel changes the way that we relate to one another. It comes from 1 Peter. It's a letter that's written to Christians that we're living in ancient times in what we now know as northern and western Turkey. It's a passage that teaches us what you might call three practices of gospel community. What, what a church, what a community does when the grace of God changes its relationships. Well, what are those things? First of all, a gospel community forgives. First of all, a gospel community forgives. You see right from the start in verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of wrongs. The Apostle Peter is calling us to a a, a sort of love 
a unique expression of love that knows how to forgive one another's sins against us. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And here, covering over means forgiving. That word there, that, uh, where it says love each other deeply, can also be translated fervently, or maybe even better, constantly. It, it's a word that describes something that's being stretched or extended. You know, like how you need to stretch in mercy to cover another way that you were wronged, and then another way that you were wronged, and then another way that you were wronged, because that's the reality of grace in a community of sinners. The love of God's people by God's grace keeps stretching in both depth and endurance. Why? Because you know the story of the good news of Jesus is that the reach of God's own love for us never runs short. The reach of God's love extends far beyond even our worst sins and even our most habitual sins against him. God's love never ends, knows no limits. His love goes to the hard place, and we love because he first loved us. And so we forgive, as the book Ephesians of Ephesians calls us to, we forgive even as we have been forgiven by God in Christ. Church, today, who do you need to forgive in the church? Who have you perhaps been holding a grudge against. It, maybe it's the church itself, whether this local body or the worldwide church or the church in America, where you've, you've just been so badly wounded, you feel scarred, resentful. Who do you need to forgive? Maybe it's the pastor that you need to forgive because the pastor needs to repent of some way that perhaps I have wronged you. Maybe even in this moment unknowingly, but a way in which I need to own up to and listen to and to respond to. It's an amazing thing to be called in community to forgive, to cover up a multitude of wrongs. The Bible ain't kidding. Because in community we experience a multitude of sins committed against us. And note, covers over doesn't mean covers up. Covering over doesn't mean to hide sins, but rather to heal them with an outpouring of mercy and grace. Covering over doesn't mean to avoid moral debts, but to void moral debts. But let's be honest, we're pretty darn good at covering up. The way in which we passive-aggressively dance around conflict. The way in which many of us assume that religious community, even Christian community, ought to be perfect community, flawless community. But what you have to notice here in this call to forgive one another, to cover over a multitude of wrongs, is the clear assumption. The assumption 
that we ought to be in intimate relationship close enough to be sinned against. You see, this passage assumes that we're going to know each other enough to be in family-like relationship enough to actually see each other's sins and flaws. You see, some of us are keeping an arm's distance from genuine relationships and community, perhaps to protect yourself, perhaps because you're afraid of being vulnerable with other people, but certainly at a distance enough that you're not even able to get hurt or wronged. The Bible tells us that yes, it's scary. Yes, we want otherwise, but this is where we truly discover ourselves and truly discover true community. Some of you say that's the exact thing that I think I'm kind of avoiding because I only want people to see my best sides. You know, I know exactly how you feel. You know, years ago, I was spending some time with a, a counselor, and I'll never forget one moment when sitting across from him, he looked at me as I was explaining all the troubles and trials that I was going through. When he turned to me and, and, and said, you know what I'm really concerned about? I'm concerned about the massive gap between the hurricane of emotions and pain that I know is swirling around inside of you and the gap between that and the cool and calm and collected person that you're presenting yourself to be on the outside. We need to close that gap, he said, and I'm still working on it. Aren't you? You see, what gospel community is supposed to be is a place where I'm becoming more and more free by God's grace to be my true self, my unedited self. Don't you want to be free to be your unadjusted self, even your uncomposed self, your unmanufactured self, your unengineered self, your unairbrushed self? You see, because it's in gospel community where my identity, my, my sense of self-worth, the core of who I am, becomes more and more based not on my daily performance, but rather my identity becomes more and more built on the perfect performance of Jesus who lived and died in my place. Which means the affection, the commitment of God to me does not wax and wane according to how I'm doing in any given moment or any given day. He loves me the same. And so I can be free and free to expose my flaws because that moment of exposure doesn't threaten my fundamental identity. To even be free to be my true sinful self. Yes, seeking to be changed. But where I'm free to be myself, even as I'm being transformed by the grace of God. Don't you know, here's good news. There's nothing that you can do in your good works to make God love you more. And there's nothing that you can do by your bad works to make God love you less. 
Because if you're in Jesus, God loves you perfectly and unchangeably. Hallelujah. That'll free you to say, come over here. Let me tell you the real truth about me. Let me show you this really broken part about me. Let me narrate to you that piece of my story that I've never had the courage to tell anybody but you. Where finally we find the fulfillment of some of our deepest longings to stop faking it, to stop pretending, and where we're able to extend the favor to one another as well where we're growing in our knowledge of what scripture says about us so that we're actually able to start to expect to find sins in others. Where, where we're no longer surprised that people are broken. Where there's nothing that you can tell me that's going to throw me off because I'm getting to know the darkness of my own heart. Because you've learned to expect to find sin in your own life. Even while you're also learning to expect to discover the power and the hope of God's transforming grace. A gospel community is a community of people who dare to struggle in the plain view of others. A gospel community is a community of people who aren't surprised at the sin of others. It's a community of people who are learning to repent of their sins and who are learning to free others to repent of their sins because the grace of God frees us to be who we really are behind closed doors, broken, deeply flawed, fearful, insecure, sometimes self-loathing. Don't you want to come out and be free? And so how might you jump into community, dear friends? Whether in a neighborhood group or a men's fellowship breakfast, ladies in fellowship together, these monthly gatherings where people come together in safe community. Whether if it's with a mom group, mom's group or if it's just one-on-one -on -one with a friend that you're getting to know and you're starting to little by little let them in, right? L let them into your life, into your story. What might change the in the way that you relate to the community if you know that this is the goal, right? This is why you're here, why you're supposed to be here, who we're supposed to be. What might change if you actually stopped keeping people at an arm's distance? And maybe you chose this week just one, one thing, one area, one piece of who you are that you generally don't like people to see, and you say, come on in, come on in, take a look, because Jesus has looked at me and has loved me, has loved me has seen that and even more, and has accepted me. So let me take a risk and let you love me too. What do you need to do to free others to be themselves around you? What does your group need to do to free others as Jesus has freed you? First, a gospel community forgives. Second, a gospel community offers hospitality. A gospel community, secondly, offers hospitality. You saw this in verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
After all, Jesus has welcomed us in and shown us hospitality by his grace in the gospel. And so it stands to reason that we would, having received the hospitality of the gospel, to bear the fruit of hospitality in our own lives. To do this for one another, and don't miss it, without grumbling. And of course, hospitality is not just providing a meal. It's so much more. Uh, hospitality is offering a gift, the gift of rehumanizing grace in a dehumanizing world. See, where you're giving a, a friend or neighbor not only food and shelter, though meaning those basic needs are important, but you're also offering conversation in a world that no longer knows how to listen. You're offering rest in a restless world to people that are just bogged down by the storms of life. Where you're offering friendship in a world of loneliness. Where you're offering a slice of dignity in a world that knows no other way of relating to you than to use you. Hospitality is a rehumanizing grace in a dehumanizing world. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. This too is gospel community. And I know immediately many of you are just automatically, maybe you don't even know you're doing it, but you're doing it, listing off all the reasons why you can't. <laughs> or all the reasons why it's just hard, it's a challenge, my place is too small, I, I don't know how to cook, I can barely put food on the table for myself, let alone for others, and barely have time to prepare a meal, or I'm just so shy, and to myself, I don't really like talking to people. All these different things. Which is why I found helpful over the years pondering the words of an article that really went viral several years ago, and I've talked about it here in this space before. And it's a piece that's entitled, Scruffy Hospitality Creates Space for Friendship. Let me just read an excerpt of it as it gives, I think, a helpful correction to what a lot of our assumptions are about what's required of Christian hospitality and how we can do it best. This is what the author writes. Once we decide to host friends for an evening, we usually kick into get ready mode, a fast and furious sprint in the days and the hours before our friends arrive. We divide and conquer the to-do list, select a menu, complete grocery shopping, mow the lawn, sweep the floors, run the vacuum, clean the playroom, wipe the bird junk off our lawn chairs, uh, we have a lot of trees, he says, set the table, clean the playroom again, and somehow, some way to pray that all that happens before the doorbell rings. The author writes, over the years, that to-do list has prepared us for hosting company, but it has also prevented us from welcoming friends into our home. I don't know if that's the case for you, too. The author continues, but over the past several months, Emily and I are learning to lay those conventions aside. Why? Because inviting friends into our lives when we are only excellent isn't friendship. Sure, there are still times when we like to go all out, spruce up the house, cook a huge Jamie Oliver-style meal, 
It can be fun and it's enjoyable to do things well, but that standard of excellence is rarely possible with two children under the age of three, or for that matter, sometimes with no children at all. Friendship isn't about always being excellent with one another. Friendship is about preparing a slice for authentic conversation, and sometimes authenticity happens when everything is a little bit scruffy. Dear friends, will you embrace this vision of scruffy hospitality? The extension of love and relationship and shelter and refuge and conversation and beauty and laughter, all these incredible gifts if you just think about it. But in a messy fashion, in a not always put together fashion, in a, hey, can you actually help grab the vacuum and help me clean this house up while you're here, my guest, kind of fashion. Because isn't that what it's like to be in family? Not just treating each other as guests before whom we need to perform, but family before whom we're called to lay down our lives See, what's interesting about this passage in 1 Peter is the apostle is actually addressing a community of Christians that are suffering. They're undergoing a lot of persecution. Some of them are hiding out. And so even when he's calling them to show hospitality to one another, he's not actually setting before them some grandiose picture or list of to-dos that they need to execute on. He's calling them to care for one another in the trenches of life, even with the little resources and emotional reserves that they might have left. See, not because you have a big home or a nice home or table, and not even because you have a home. Remember, Jesus' greatest act of hospitality was when he multiplied fish and loaves of bread in an open field. Because, again, it's not just about the space. It's about the grace of relationships and conversation and love. So who do you need to invite to your home this week, this month, whether or not you feel ready? Who do you need to extend hospitality towards? But before I move on, let me say there's also more to hospitality than even this. We must know that you may or may not know that the ancient word here translated hospitality in verse 9 is actually a combination of the word for love and the word for strangers put together, the love of strangers. See, biblical hospitality is the welcome of strangers. And so what the Bible means by strangers is not only people that you don't know personally, they're also people who are strangers to the world. Disconnected from basic relationships that provide security in the world. Includes the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the ethnic outsider. The theologian John Owen describes such strangers as those who really stand in need of help and refreshment. You know, strangers aren't just people that you don't know. 
They're also people who are quote-unquote strange to you, who are different from you economically, ethnically. True hospitality in the gospel, in gospel community, is to welcome such as these. That's why in her phenomenal book on Christian hospitality, Dr. Christine Pohl writes this, although we often think of hospitality as a tame and pleasant practice, cocktail parties, Christian hospitality has always had a subversive countercultural dimension. And that's why throughout the book of Acts and in the New Testament epistles like this, the letters, we hear about how the early church was always disrupting social barriers by their hospitality, by the way that they ate, with whom they ate, and how they shared their living space. They transcended economic and ethnic differences by sharing their meals, sharing their homes, sharing their worship with people of different backgrounds. And so we have to, in this context, raise the question, who will you extend hospitality towards, but not just those who are already your friends? but also to those who are to you strangers? Who might you deliberately invite into your homes, people who you might describe as being different from you, economically or, or racially or generationally? In no question, homogeneous hospitality would be easier, just hanging out with people that are just like you or people that you already know. It would be easier, maybe less stressful, maybe less socially challenging. But this is the wager of the gospel, that the welcome of social strangers is not only far more rewarding in the long run, it also builds your faith and teaches you to love like Jesus. You extend hospitality like this, you become more like our great host, the eternally hospitable Savior, even Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be like him? A gospel community forgives. A gospel community offers hospitality. And thirdly, and in closing, a gospel community shares. Saw in verses 10 and 11 these words, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, that they should do so with the strength God provides. This is a call to share your lives, your love with one another by serving each other. Our brother Justin earlier already put out a wonderful call to invite you to get involved in the different ministries of the church, not only to love one another, but also to love, not only to serve, but also to be served. And just a couple comments on what we discover in this passage. Uh, first of all, it's important to understand every single one of you, if you are in Christ, you have a gift. You have a gift, a talent, an, an ability, at least one. which God has given to you as a unique way that you can love people best. 
See, everybody is called to love, and sometimes we're called to love as servants, which means in our weaknesses. We're called to love even when it doesn't feel right, but we're also called to love in the way that we're gifted, in our strengths, in the way that we have unique abilities. Some of you are unusually good at encouraging others, of giving a timely word to lift someone up when they're down. Some of you are terrible at encouragement, but... But you're really good at explaining the Bible with clarity and in a compelling and life-changing way to other people. Some of you are really gifted administratively. Others of you are great athletes, and you've actually seen God use your athleticism, your love of sports, to build relationships with neighbors whom you otherwise would have no access to. Some of you are handy around the house. You can just... Fix just about anything. Come on over to my house, right? <laughs> Others of you are handy, but differently with computers or with yarn or with personal finances. Some of you could hold a baby all day. Some of you are terrified of children. But you grew up with grandparents in your home, and so you're really good at having conversations with seniors. Man, you, you, this, this is just a, a treasure trove right here in this room of gifts upon gifts, which Peter calls grace from God because that's really what it is. God's supernatural enablement for you to love uniquely according to your God-given design, who you are in Christ. Let me add a couple additional insights. Every one of you have at least one gift. But it didn't come from you. It's a gift from God, so handle it with humility. And when it produces fruit, make sure that God gets all the glory. It didn't come from you. You also need to steward that gift. Because it belongs to God, it's been loaned to you, as it were. And so now you're on the hook to actually use it. Some of you have been pocketing the gifts that God has given you and not using it for God's glory and other people's good. You need to pull it out, friend. You need to pull it out and love. But also know that your gift may not be the same as others. You see, Peter talks about, quote, God's grace in its various forms. You know, there he's actually using a word that's sometimes used of varied colors, like a, a box of precious stones with all its different colors of the rainbow. Uh, Peter says that's what you see when you look out upon the church, a community, all these different shades and dimensions of giftedness. And here he says you can loosely group them as word gifts and work gifts, right? Special abilities that you can use with the words that you speak and then special abilities that you can use with your hands, all employed in the service of others to lift them up, to build them up, to push them point and point them to Christ. But if your gifts are not the same as others, own yours, but don't compare to others. Don't envy. Don't covet. And finally, recognize again that Peter is teaching this in the context of suffering, which means he's calling these people to rise up even in the midst of their affliction and to love and serve one another. 
You see, none of them, according to Peter, is a powerless victim. Even when their lives are being threatened for bearing the name of Jesus. See, and even us, even when you're weak, even when you are suffering, even when you are in pain, and I know that describes some of you here today, that's why you're here. Even when you feel cut low, you still, by God's grace, have the ability to bless and serve others with the strength of Christ, and sometimes all the more so precisely because you're weak. This is the mystery of how the grace of God works. It starts down low, sometimes which is exactly where you're at. We're called to serve. We're called to share, and as we give generously to one another in community, we also find our own needs are met. Each person in the body of Christ doing their part, loving one another that all might be loved, serving one another, every person from the front pew to the back pew to the top pew, and everyone in between doing their part so that there's not a single person in this community that is not touched by the grace of God. This is a, a vision of mutual sharing as we serve one another, which I think is so well illustrated in this little book, a sweet little book that I was reading my kids, just to close with this, a book from Hawaii for kids called Too Many Mangoes. Great little story where little Kama and Nani help their grandpa pick some mangoes from the mango tree. The grandpa tells them, there are too many mangoes for our little family, so take these down the road and share them with our neighbors. And so Kama and Nani, they load up their little red wagon with all these mangoes and they begin down their block. They give some to Auntie Pua, who says, you know, the, the spotty mangoes are the ones that she would love to have because those are perfect for making mango bread. And then she, in return, gives them some banana macadamia nut muffins in return. Uh, then the kids keep on going down. Kawhi takes some of the golden yellow mangoes and, in return, gives them some papayas. Mr. Wong he gives, takes some of the green mangoes and hands them in return some guava jam. See, each person knows a special use for each of the different kinds of wet mangoes in the kid's wagon. And each neighbor that they visit gives them something in return. Muffins, papayas, guava jam, bananas, and orchid plants. Until the story says to the reader towards the end, Kama and Nani finally went to every house on the block and realized that although the mangoes were gone, their wagon was completely full. You see, some of you are intimidated by the idea of serving. I don't know if I'll have any time left. I don't know if I'll have any energy left. I don't know if I'll have any love left. But here's the mystery of the grace of God. The more you spend, the more you receive in return. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but if we're a community of people that are committed one to another, even when you feel like your mangoes are gone, you turn around and you realize your wagon is always completely full. This is a community of sharing, using the grace that God has given us to love and to serve, 
to show hospitality, even to forgive our continuing wrongs against another. That in our midst, God might create something supernatural, something out of this world, something that you might call a gospel community. Don't you long for that? Don't you want to help build that together? By God's grace, we can. For our good, for your good, for our neighborhood's good, and for his glory. Let's pray. So Jesus, we ask that you would do that in our midst. We pray that you would bless your people and give us grace to love one another deeper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing some of this into our hearts.